this is a, a, a delicate topic we're looking at this morning, so um, I'm, I'm going to be try to be as careful as I can, and we're going to spend a lot of time. This may be the last few sermons have been a little longer, so uh, this is going to be on the longer side. You can kind of gear, prepare yourself for that. Um, but we're looking at uh, we're still studying the Sermon on the Mount, and we're in Matthew chapter five. Uh, just looking at two verses, verses 31 and 32, and this is the word of the Lord. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray together. Jesus, our Savior, uh, we come here and we have come to you as broken sinners. And we know from the Sermon on the Mount that you receive us that way as you began this sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We ask that as our teacher, you would show us in these words that Indeed, your burden, uh, your yoke is easy and your burden is light. That you love us and that you want good things for us. I pray for your Holy Spirit now as we uh, talk about marriage and divorce and remarriage. Um, I know uh, this is a very sensitive topic, especially uh, uh, many people in here, their lives have been touched by these issues. And so I pray for your presence here now uh, that you, your presence would be with my words, that you would give me words, but also uh, your presence with your people, that you would uh, sit with us, that you would um, uh, put your hand upon us, that you would um, open our hearts, that you would comfort us and challenge us. So um, we ask you to be our teacher as we commit ourselves to your holy word now. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations our hearts be pleasing, acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock, our security, our, our protection, our fortress, our rock and our redeemer, the one who sets us free. In Christ's name, amen. So um, this, uh, we've been in a little bit of a string of uh, heavy topics. Uh, we looked at anger two weeks ago. Last week, uh, we looked at the topic of lust. And uh, now, uh, divorce and uh, remarriage, and as I said, this is, um, um, th- these are probably some of the most sensitive areas for many of us in many of the things that we encounter in our lives, anger, lust, and, and uh, marriage issues, divorce issues, um, and uh, which is probably what we should expect as uh, Jesus' most um, careful, most famous uh, sermon, we would expect that the things that he's going to speak about are the things that are, are most sensitive, most real about our lives, and that's what he does. He does not shy away from anything. And, um, and uh, one of the things that makes a sermon, uh, this sermon especially, difficult is because uh, all of us are coming from different backgrounds, di- different experiences, uh, different uh, life experiences, different families. And so um, it's... Uh, and, with regard to uh, divorce and marriage, um, having all those circumstances is hard in one sermon to speak to all those different, all the complexity of all those different situations. I know that there's uh, all kinds of complexity um, 
to, uh, that many of you have walked through in your families, maybe in your own relationships, maybe in your own marriages. And so to address all of them in one sermon is very difficult. Um, and so I'm going to try to be as sensitive as I can. But on the other hand, um, as possible as it, seem, as it seems, impossible as it seems to address all those things in one sermon, uh, here we have Jesus, who not only in one sermon, but in one verse, <laughs> gives his teaching about, uh, about divorce and remarriage. One verse. And you think, that's all you're going to say? You're going to give a word, one verse and then you're going to go on to the next thing? I mean, Jesus, don't you know how complex marriage relationships are and the issues that are behind a divorce? And, and you're just going to give a verse to it? And, you know, on the one hand, there's, there's more complexity than one verse, really, because if you look at the last two weeks, we've looked at the topic of anger uh, in quite detail, a lot of detail. There's a, quite a lot that Jesus has to say about that. And we've looked at the topic of lust. And probably those two things, if you removed anger and lust from marriages, divorce would not be an issue. So in many ways, he's been dealing with it uh, the last couple weeks. But um, the other thing, the other side, is that in any subject, we're not ready to deal with the complexity of a topic until we've really internalized and dealt with the fundamental principles. The fundamental principles, which um, are often simple. And, um, and so we're going to try to unpack that uh, this morning. And, um, um, and let me just say that uh, as we look at the Bible's teaching on divorce and remarriage, uh, we are going to um, uh, insist on not shying away from what, what the Bible teaches. But I think it's also important for us to remember that um, the sins that are involved in, in, uh, in divorce and marriage... Um, are absolutely not the unpardonable sins. Um, sometimes we see them that way as this is the unpardonable sin. It's not. And we approach uh, this topic knowing that Christ has paid for all of our sin. And so knowing that we have security in Christ, it actually frees us to open ourselves honestly to look at what God's word says and to be challenged by it because we have, we're in Christ and we're secure in Christ. And so with those things said and with that in mind, um, this morning I want to answer four questions for us from this from this passage and from the Bible. First, how does God view marriage? Second, how does God view divorce? Third, how does God view remarriage? And fourth, how does God view us? What does he have to say to us um, in this community? Many of us, uh, as I go through these things, uh, will hit certain points of our life. What does he have to say uh, to each of us? And... Um, um, and so uh, uh, this topic requires a lot of care. So stay with me as we go along, and I'm going to do my best to address as many of the questions as you might have uh, as possible. So four questions, and the first is this. How does God view marriage? So first, we need to start off, before we understand the Bible's teaching on divorce and remarriage, we need to first understand what does the Bible have to say positively about what marriage is. And as you look through the Bible, uh, the main thing, whether as it's uh, many of the biblical authors, but especially Jesus, the place that they all look to, to to have marriage defined for them is in Genesis chapter 2 in the creation account, where, uh, you know, Adam was naming all the animals, and all the animals came in pairs, and everyone had a partner, and Adam didn't have a partner. He said, where's my partner? And so uh, God... Uh, put him in a deep sleep, took a rib out, made the rib into a woman, and gave him this wife. And then he sings this song, and he says, At last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And it's kind of the, the first wedding ceremony right there. God's kind of the pastor, and he's like, okay, I give you to her. And, you know, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh is kind of like the, your, your flesh is the soft part of, of your body, and your bones are the hard part. So it's kind of saying, in my strength and in my weakness, I'm with you. We're one in strength and in weakness. 
And it's this bonding together. Uh, and and they all, all the biblical authors go back to Genesis 2 to say this is God's ideal, God's picture of what marriage is. And in that wonderful little passage of Genesis 2, we see three things about how God views marriage. First of all, God views marriage as a gift. Marriage is a gift. And uh, in that little passage, you know, it begins with the words that says, And then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. You know, God makes, in the Genesis 1, it's, he's making all these things, and God said it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. And then finally says, this is not good. Man does not, should not be alone. I don't want man to be alone. I want you to have a partner. I want you to have uh, someone with you. And so he gives us marriage. He gives the man a wife and, and, and uh, gives, gives him a, a companion. And actually in Genesis 2, it doesn't say anything about the woman being able to, to bear children or anything. It's not, it's not because of the, the kids that they're coming together. It is for, for them, for each other. And so it is a gift. It is because God loves us that he gave us marriage. And he doesn't want us to be alone. And so what that means is we come into God's challenges about marriage. What we have to understand is that when God teaches us about marriage is that he wants good things for us. He doesn't want us to be miserable. When he gives us his commands, they're not to make us sad, to make us heavy, to burden us. He wants good things for us, and he wants us to be happy. And that also means that because marriage is a gift, we have to understand, uh, we have to understand marriage within the parameters that God gave to us because uh, God invented marriage. He created it. So it's under his understanding that it becomes a gift when we, when we enter into marriage within his parameters and his boundaries and his instructions. So first of all, marriage is a covenant. Second thing you see in that passage is that marriage, or sorry, marriage is a gift. The second thing you see in, in that passage is that marriage is a covenant. And at the end of that passage, you know, they had, Adam sings this song. This at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and I um, uh, I will call, she shall be called a woman, and it's this uh, wedding poem, you know, he, he breaks out his guitar and sings her song, and then, uh, therefore, uh, uh, and then at the end of the passage it says, therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And so to hold fast is, is a covenant language, in the Hebrew, that's the covenant language of, of, you know, God's people, God's relationship to God's people is a covenant relationship, it's a binding together and um, is that marriage is, is fundamentally what it is, is a covenant, bond, a covenant bond built on a promise. So what that means is that marriage is not primarily a contract. It's not an arrangement that we're making to live together for a while, and I'm going I'm to give you some things, you're going to give me some things. It's, it's not a contract. It's, it's far deeper and far more profound than that. It's also not primarily an expression of romantic love. The foundation of marriage is not a romantic love because your, your feelings for each other are going to go up and down and the marriage can't follow your romantic feelings. And also, as I said, marriage is not primarily a place for having children. Marriage is, all these things are, ide- are a part of marriage ideally, but the thing, fundamentally what marriage is, is it's a covenant relationship. It is a relationship built on a vow, I will never leave you. I will never leave you. And that's part of the gift that God is trying to give us in marriage is a person who will say to us, I will never leave you. And uh, there's a, um, a movie that came out a few years ago. I don't think it did very well, but I, I liked it. It was a John Cusack movie called Martian Child, which is a story about this kid who was in the foster care system. He'd been passed around to all these uh, homes, and none of the homes wanted him, and he was in this kind of... Uh, I don't, know if, I don't know if you call it an orphanage or, you know, but he was in a foster care facility. And, uh, and there's this John Cusack's this science fiction writer whose wife has died and he's looking to, for, to maybe adopt a child so that he has someone else in his life. 
And uh, so he goes to the, the foster care, you know, gal, and he's talking with her, and she says, well, you know, they're walking in the courtyard, and here are all some of the kids, and I don't know if he's picking one out or... And, um, and there's this kid that's in a box, and she says, oh, that's Dennis. Dennis thinks he's from Mars, uh, and so he's waiting for the spaceship to come to bring him home. He thinks he's from Mars. And, you know, he's a science fiction writer. He says, that's the one. I, I like the kid from Mars. So uh, bring him in. And so uh, he brings him in, and, and the whole movie is about their relationship and the difficulty. And here's this kid, and the big message he's had his whole life is, I'm not an earthling. I don't fit in here. I don't fit in any families. I don't fit in with anyone. Uh, everyone's throwing me out of their homes. And now you're going to throw me out, too. I knew this wasn't working. And so at the end of the movie, he runs away. And, you know, they had had some argument. He runs, and he goes up this water tower. He's in the top of the water tower. And there's all these police helicopters. It's a night that are coming. And he sees these lights, and he says, those are the spaceships. They're coming to get me. And so he's walking out to the edge of the, um, uh, the, edge of the water tower, and he's reaching out. And John Cusack comes up, and he's trying to get him to move away from the edge and tell him, you know, you're an earthling. You're not a Martian. You're an earthling. And the thing he says to him right there is he says, Dennis, I will never, 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 never leave you. I will never leave you. And that becomes the turning point when Dennis decides I'm an earthling and he runs into his arms is that for someone to say, I will never leave you. And this is what God wants for us in marriage, is a covenant relationship where someone says that to us. And what that means is that even maybe the most important thing about what that passage says that marriage is, is that marriage is, at its most fundamental level then, is a picture. And because uh, one of the last things Genesis says is it says, you hold fast to your wife, and, and the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And uh, in, in marriage, two lives become so profoundly united that they are one. They are like one body. And that everything about their life is shared together. What you're saying is all my thoughts, my, my plans, my future, my resources, my money, my heart, everything is yours. And so the, uh, it is a binding together these two things. And what's interesting is the Apostle Paul takes that passage in Genesis 2 and, you know, about their becoming one flesh. And he says, by the way, this is a mystery. But Genesis 2, it's actually not talking about marriage. It's talking about Christ and the church. And that what happens in the gospel is that what, is, what does Jesus do? Jesus comes to us, his bride, and he shares life with us. He becomes one flesh with us. So everything that's his becomes ours. He shares with us all his, you know, his inheritance, his spirit, his righteousness before God. He's a son and he's approved before God. His, uh, the cleansing blood of, uh, uh, of his sacrifice. And then we share with him everything that's his. Or everything that's ours. And he takes our sin. He takes our guilt. He takes our shame. And we become one with him. And so that the most fundamental thing about marriage is that it is a picture of the gospel, that marriage is supposed to be a picture of the most profound uh, reality in the universe of the gospel. And so um, how does God view marriage? It's a sacred gift that he doesn't want us to be alone. He wants good things for us. It's a solemn covenant where we vow before God to one another that I will never leave you. And lastly, it is a mysterious picture and maybe the most profound picture in the world of the gospel. And so I think that it's only when we 
embrace that kind of breathtaking vision of what God intends marriage to be, that we can really come to understand the severity of the Bible, the way the Bible talks about divorce. Um, it helps us to understand why, why does the Bible treat divorce the way that it does. And so now I want to move into the second question we're going to ask is not just how does God view marriage, but how does God view divorce? And this is I'm going to spend the most time on this uh, section. There's a lot, lot to talk about, a lot to deal with. Um, and uh, let me just say first, in the Old Testament, there are passages, um, you know, a number of passages where God talks about uh, being faithful to the wife of one's youth. You know, uh, Proverbs talks about that. Uh, Malachi chapter 2 talks about that. that um, and one of the big reasons is that marriage was given to be a picture of our, God's covenant relationship with us. And the way that the, that the Old Testament talks about God's covenant relationship with us is it says that his steadfast love endures forever. God's steadfast love endures forever. And so, um, and so naturally, God sees divorce as falling short of the ideal for marriage that he had in creation. It falls short. Um, God didn't want us to be alone. And so uh, in divorce, we're alone. And God um, I, has a, a covenant relationship that's a picture of the gospel. And so marriage, it, it, a divorce is, is missing that picture. And so this is why uh, divorce is troubling to God. It is not what, it's not God's ideal. And probably uh, the most important Old Testament passage on divorce comes in Deuteronomy 24, which Jesus refers to in this passage that I just read. You see there how he says in verse 31, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, um, I'm going to read to you, uh, Jesus is kind of alluding to Deuteronomy 24, and I'm, I'm going to read actually th that whole passage to you. There's just one thing in particular that I want to highlight. It says this, Deuteronomy 24, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because, he has some, uh, because she has some, some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man uh, hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land of the Lord your God. Uh, is giving you as an inheritance. Okay, there's a lot in there. But the, the, um, the key phrase in there, all, that whole scenario that Moses is laying out in Deuteronomy 24 begins with, a, uh, it says a husband, uh, if, he, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And so in the, uh, in the first century, it's well known that there was a common debate about what is finding some indecency in your wife. And so there were two schools of thought. There was uh, Rabbi Hillel and the Rabbi Shammai, who both uh, had kind of two views on it. Hillel took the more liberal view, who said, you know, it says some indecency. It's actually any indecency. If there's anything about your wife that is a problem, then you can uh, send her out of the house. So, you know, she burns your toast, and you're, you don't like burnt toast. That is, an, that is grounds for divorce, whatever you want. That's indecency. You know, she's not a, she overcooked the, Asparagus, I don't know, whatever. You can, you can end the marriage. On the other side, so he was focusing on the word any, any indecency. But then Shammai put emphasis on the word indecency. And he said that that word indecency refers to nakedness. 
And so he said that this is talking about if there is any um, sexual infidelity in, in her, then that gives grounds for divorce, the more conservative view. And Jesus here in this passage is clearly um, uh, siding with the more conservative branch of the debate in his culture, is that he says that divorce is a serious matter, matter and that though the Bible says there are times when it should be permitted, it should be very limited, as limited as possible. And actually, uh, Jesus, in a later point in Matthew, in Matthew 19, has a, uh, another discussion like this. It's a little, he says a little more than he does in this passage about divorce and remarriage. And in that, po- in that passage, he says, What God has joined together, let no man separate. And he's coming back to Genesis 2, where it says that in marriage, we become one flesh. You become one body, and you are profoundly joined together, and that is not easily torn apart. And actually, I I put a quote for you from C.S. Lewis. Uh, This is from Mere Christianity on page 3 of your bulletin, where uh, I think he describes this, uh, how... um, difficult of a matter divorce is. He says this, Christianity teaches that marriage is for life. Churches all agree with one another about marriage a great deal more than any of them agrees with the outside world. I mean they all regard divorce as something like cutting up a living body as a kind of surgical operation, right? Because you've become one flesh. So divorce is like cutting up a body. Um, Some of them think the operation so violent that it cannot be done at all. Others admit it as a a desperate remedy in extreme cases. They are all agreed that it is more like having both your legs cut off than it is like dissolving a business partnership or even deserting a regiment. What they all disagree with is the modern view that it is a simple readjustment of partners to be made whenever people feel they are no longer in love with one another or when either of them... uh, falls in love with someone else. So um, not only does divorce fall far short of the creation ideal of what God intended for marriage to be, but what Lewis is saying here is that it does tremendous damage. You can't have a divorce without tremendous damage being done. And I I just know that um, for those of you who have experienced divorce up close, whether that's uh, in your own family, that maybe that's your parents, uh, maybe you have been through a divorce. Maybe someone close to you has been through a divorce. You've been in a church where a divorce has been very difficult. You know that this is true. It, it doesn't, it's not a, just a rearranging of a relationship. Um, it, it is a tearing apart, and you can't go through it unmarred, unwounded. And so the question is, is it ever then appropriate for a Christian to get divorced? Now, historically, um, Christians have said that there are two grounds for Christians to get divorced. The first ground comes here in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, where Jesus uh, says, uh, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. So Jesus says that if your spouse is unfaithful to you, in that setting, you are free to divorce. Now, that doesn't mean you should necessarily divorce. I as the gospel shapes our marriages, uh, uh, forgiveness uh, and uh, reconciliation uh, is going to be a deep consideration of any true Christian. 
But Jesus says uh, that is ground for divorce. The second ground comes in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul is talking about a situation where someone becomes a Christian or a Christian is married to a non-Christian. And the non-Christian basically says, I'm not willing to live with you if you're a Christian. So basically, the Christian is put in a situation where I either need to choose Jesus or I need to choose the marriage. And Paul says, choose Jesus. If you, if you have to pick your faith or you have to pick the marriage, pick your faith. And you are free uh, to let that marriage be dissolved and let, uh, let your spouse go. You don't need to force yourself into that marriage. And so this, uh, this desertion is called desertion by a, by a, non-Christian, uh, by a non-Christian. And so um, uh, the operating assumption is... Um, of marriage is, should be that in our marriages, divorce is not an option. That should be an operating assumption. It's not a viable option for us. We can't go there. Which I, you know, I often tell people uh, that in your arguments, it's important the D word should not be mentioned. That is not, a, it's not a weapon. It's not a threat that should be used, should be used in your arguments because it's not an option for a Christian. These are the only two grounds, and uh, even as frustrating as marriage can be, um, God has limited us that we need to stay in this relationship. So, uh, so the, we have to approach each other with this assumption that divorce is not an option, and God wants it that way because I'll tell you what happens. When you get married, you, you didn't think you were sinful before. You, know, you, didn't re- you, know, you thought maybe you were a little sinful before you got married, but then you got married, and you're like, wow, I am a selfish sinful, um, defensive, argumentative. Uh, I didn't even know I had anger until I, I got married. And so, and that's one of the things that God wanted to do. He stuck you in there and put someone right, bef- right in front of you, a mirror who's going to bring out all the sin that's sitting in there that you never thought you had, and he's going to force you to deal with it. He's putting you in a situation where unless this is dealt with, is it, unless this is brought to the Lord, unless this is repented of, um, you are going to be miserable. And he's forcing us to mature and to grow and to transform and to learn more about his love and to find my identity and who, and who his love is. And so if you can run away from the marriage, then uh, the most important thing that wants, God wants to do in your life isn't going to happen if you can run away from it. So he's keeping you in the marriage. Now, um, one of the things that this is important as a community is that I th- we need to be absolutely careful that we ever advise someone else that they should get a divorce. Um, I might even say that you should not ever advise someone to get a, a divorce. That's not your decision. And uh, especially, uh, that we should, we should be very careful to say that. And, um, but especially, actually there's a, a, a family friend of ours. She's a, a therapist down in Seattle, and she's not a Christian. And she actually, uh, I was talking to her maybe a year ago, and, and she said that to me. That I could tell through her decades of being a therapist, that was one thing that she realized. Is she says, it is not my job to tell someone to get a divorce. And I could tell that what she was saying is I had told people, I had heard things that were happening in their marriage. I was like, why don't you just get out of there? Why don't you just end that? It sounds terrible. It sounds miserable. And then they left, and they were way worse off. And she realized I was, st- I was overstepping my bounds. I shouldn't have been giving them that kind of advice. Now, um, especially, this is true, if we're talking to someone and we're only hearing one side of the story uh, in a marriage relationship, um, oftentimes uh, things you think you have a clear picture. When you're, if you're mainly talking to one person in a marriage and you're getting a picture of what the marriage is like, you really don't have a picture until you've heard both people. Actually, I heard one pastor talking about a, a woman who had come to him and said, let me ask you, is it okay as a Christian for, for a husband to assault his wife? 
And, and the pastor was like, well, uh, no, what did he do? And he was like, well, he was physically restraining me. He's like, wow, that sounds pretty bad. And he went and talked to the husband. And he said, well, did she tell you why I was restraining her? I, she dumped water all over my head at the dinner table, then broke a plate over my head, and she was reaching for the steak knife to come after me. And I grabbed her wrist so that she wouldn't stab me with the steak knife. And he was like, huh, yeah, she failed to mention that part uh, about the steak knife. <laughs> And, uh, and there, was, oh, there, there was two sides. And, and to make a pronouncement, to make a judgment, whether you've only heard one side, would be very, be very unwise. So we have to be very careful. Now, I'm not saying that you should say that someone's being a liar or that you should even say that you don't believe someone when they're telling you. I'm not saying that. It needs to be looked into. It needs to be investigated. But it ta- we need to be judicious and slow. Okay? So, um, but... Again, the operating assumption in a marriage is that divorce is not an option. Now, of course, the obvious question that maybe everyone in the room is thinking, I've mentioned two grounds for divorce, sexual infidelity and desertion by a non-believer. What about abuse? What about abuse? Um, Now, one of the things that's interesting about the two grounds for divorce that are in the Bible, if you go to Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 16 and you hear Jesus talk about divorce and remarriage, this is what he says in Mark 10. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, based on that passage, you would think, well, what grounds are there for divorce? It sounds like none. There's no grounds for divorce. But then you come to Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 15, and there Jesus adds an exception. And in this passage, he says, except on the ground of sexual immorality. So you'd say, oh, well, I thought there was no grounds for divorce when I just read Mark 10. But then I read Mark 5, and it turns out there is ground for divorce, sexual immorality. Now, why didn't Jesus mention that in Mark, in Mark chapter 10? Well, most people would say he took it for granted. Everyone in that culture, uh, whether it, the Greeks, whether the pagans, whether the Jews, everyone understood that sexual immorality was, was legitimate grounds for divorce. So Jesus was taking that for granted there. But then you come and you say, well, then Paul in 1 Corinthians adds another ground for divorce is if you're going to be deserted for a non-Christian. And if you have to choose between your faith and uh, choose between your faith and uh, or choose between your spouse and your faith. Sorry. So it turns out there's actually another exception. Why didn't Jesus mention that in Mark chapter 5, and why didn't he mention it in, in uh, Mark chapter 10? And again, we'd probably say, well, Jesus probably took that for granted. Jesus says in other places that um, our loyalty to him should be above all other loyalties. But it wasn't mentioned. And so the question is, are there other exceptions, are there other grounds for divorce that we should be just taking for granted? That obviously this is a grounds for divorce. Most people would say, doesn't abuse fall under that category? Well, let me say no and yes. So The no answer is that historically Christians have restricted the grounds of divorce to what the Bible clearly says of uh, these are the two grounds. This should be your operating assumption is that uh, sexual infidelity and desertion by a non-believer are the grounds for divorce. That was Luther's positions, Calvin's positions, the Westminster Confessions um, uh, position. But I think that on the other hand, you notice in this passage that Jesus says everyone who divorces his wife And what's being talked about in this passage is um, there is a sense in which Jesus is talking about a man putting away a woman. And uh, and in in the the ancient world, for a woman to be abandoned by her husband left her extremely vulnerable 
in that situation. She had no one to support her, no one to protect her. And so there is an element of Jesus' intent in this command um, is to protect uh, the, uh, the vulnerable woman who's going to be vulnerable in the case of this divorce. And um, actually, uh, now this does not mean that a woman can get a divorce you know, for any reason, and men are the only ones who can't get divorces because uh, Mark 10 says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So the restriction is still on men and women, but there's an element um, of justice here um, that's at the heart of Jesus' teaching, and defending the weak is at the heart of much of biblical ethics. Biblical ethics is always trying to defend the weak, those who are in a vulnerable situation. And, um, and the fact is, frankly, still in abuse situations, um, uh, you know, uh, statistics that were taken earlier in, 2000, in, uh, in the 2000s said that women accounted for 85% of the victims of intimate partner violence and men approximately 15%. There is... Um, uh, the majority of abuse cases are men uh, abusing women... And, uh, and Jesus is here protecting uh, the wife, is, is that the man cannot just, on a whim, dismiss her and leave her vulnerable. So with that principle of justice, we should be carrying that into our decisions as we, as we uh, think through our marriage situations. And so I do think that it is absurd and even wrong if a church says to any, anything like to an abused person, someone who's in an abusive, dangerous situation, say, you have to stay in there because the Bible, you don't have grounds for divorce. I absolutely don't think that a church should say that. Now, um, a caveat. <laughs> this is complicated. Uh, um, the caveat is we need to be careful about the word abuse. Right? Abuse means a lot of things. There's, there's verbal abuse, there's emotional abuse, there's physical abuse. And, um, and the reality is, at what point does someone hurting someone become abuse? Now, of course, there are legal definitions of abuse, and uh, we should heed those as Christians, but they're not going to guide every decision that we make as Christians. And the reality is that we will all profoundly hurt one another in marriage. We will, in all of our marriages, we know how to hurt one another. You know how to hurt your spouse more profoundly than anyone else does. And so, uh, you know, um, and and the the other thing that I want to say is that in our culture, the most powerful people in our culture are victims. If you are a victim, you can get anything you want. And so we have to guard ourselves. There is going to be an allurement to being a victim because if I can say that that I'm a victim and someone's abusing me, it puts me in a tremendous position of control and power. And so this is a very uh, difficult thing because on the one hand, uh, there's absolutely abuse that happens and that needs to be stopped as a church, as a community, we need to stand against. And yet on the other hand, we need to be asking ourselves, is this really abuse? Is this, um, we're sinning against each other. And where is that line drawn? How do you make that decision? Now, that's a complicated topic. One answer I do want to give, though, is that when we get married, especially as Christians, many of us, we get married with a pastor doing the marriage, doing the wedding. We get married in a church, and there are witnesses. And what we're saying is that my marriage is a public reality. These people are witnesses to my marriage, and that means that this community has an involvement in what's happening in my marriage. So as I work through those things, first of all, it's probably not a decision that I make on my own. And, and if you're 
in trouble in your marriage, it's absolutely to remember that our marriages that we're living together is something that we do as a community. Someone should know about it, and it should also be worked through. And I think a lot of these decisions, uh, we have you know, elders in the church. We want wise people. This is why it's so important to have uh, elders who meet qualifications of the scriptures, people uh, that we can trust to be godly, to be wise, who themselves have healthy marriages. I think people who have healthy marriages are going to be able to make better decisions about um, what should be happening in a marriage. And so these are questions, but we do it in community. These decisions are, 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 at the end of the day, they're not black and white, and they end up being judgment calls that we make together prayerfully under the authority of God's word, okay? So complex answer. These are a lot of the things that we need to be thinking through. But the, the, the principle, the fundamental principle, is that we all enter into our marriages understanding that divorce is not a viable option, okay? Now, a lot of complexity there. This next question is, uh, we're halfway, I think. <laughs> um, the next question uh, is, I think, even probably more complex uh, biblically, but I'm going to spend less time on it, is the question of uh, how does God view remarriage? So we've looked at how does God view divorce. The Bible gives two grounds for divorce, and, um, of course, we use wisdom in thinking through uh, divorce how does God view remarriage? And um, the Bible is surprisingly strong in its statements against remarriage. And, uh, for example, in this passage, here you have a woman who is being discarded by her husband. And uh, it says that her remarriage is adultery. That's what Jesus, these are Jesus' words. These are not my words. Jesus says that that remarriage is adultery. Now, one of the things to notice, though, is that Jesus says, verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. So in some ways, the man who's divorcing her is the culpable one because he's putting her in a situation where she's vulnerable and now she needs to go find another husband and it's going to force her into, into adultery. So in some ways, he's still the culpable one. But, um, but also it says that the man that she remarries is also called an adulterer. It goes on, it says, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Which is to say that when Jesus says, um, what, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And so that there's, a, there's a question that I have to ask is, if someone's been divorced and it was, they were not uh, divorced on biblical grounds, I have to ask the question, I am now, if I marry them, I'm putting myself in between the possibility for reconciliation. And, um, and so there are a number of uh, views that Protestants have taken on the question of remarriage. One view uh, that's it's more common than I thought it was, uh, John Piper is a very well-known uh, Bible teacher, takes this view, is that the Bible teaches that, um, that the only time you can remarry is when your spouse has died. And at the, when they have died, then you are free to remarry. And the reason for that is because the only places actually talk about kind of Someone, a Christian remarrying is 1 Corinthians 7 and Romans 7. Uh, and in, that, in those cases, when, it's when the spouse has died. But um, the historic Protestant view, which this is my view, um, is that as long as a divorce is on biblical grounds, namely sexual immorality or desertion uh, by an unbeliever, uh, the divorced are free to marry. And actually, I, I think this is both uh, the innocent party and the guilty party that uh, the marriage has uh, now been severed. And the reason for this is that in both cases, with sexual immorality and desertion, there has been a breaking of the one flesh relationship. 
There's been a severing of the one flesh relationship. And, um, and what's interesting in this passage is when Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, it's interesting he doesn't use the word adultery, except on the ground of adultery. And maybe part of the reason is because just in the passage before, he said that if anyone looks after a woman lustfully, then he's committed adultery in his heart. And so, you know, that would mean that anyone who's kind of looked at a woman lustfully, now there's grounds for divorce. But what he says is he uses this word porneia, which is where we get the word pornography from, and which can mean a lot of things. But I, uh, theologians have said that um, what's likely, what this likely refers to is any... Uh, um, infidelity to the one flesh relationship. When someone breaks the one flesh relationship and, and goes outside of the one flesh relationship, that this is uh, the grounds for divorce. And um, what that means is if it, if, um, what that means is that if someone gets a divorce because we don't get along anymore, because I don't love you anymore, or because we never should have got married in the first place. None of these are biblical grounds for divorce. What God says, in God's eyes, the marriage is um, uh, still a reality. You are still married. You are still a one flesh relationship because the one flesh relationship hasn't been broken. And, uh, and so the Bible says that in that case, if the one flesh relationship hasn't been broken, you should not get remarried. And um, you need to leave the door open for reconciliation. Now, this is a, these are hard sayings. I'm just trying to say to you clearly what I think the Bible teaches. Um, uh, and what that also says is that if we're thinking of marrying a divorced person, we have to think about that I'm getting in the way of the possibility of reconciliation. So that we should not, if someone has been uh, divorced not on biblical grounds, then we should not marry them as well. Now, by the way, uh, this emphasis on being, remaining unmarried, this is what Jesus teaches, this is what the Apostle Paul teaches. And actually, the early church for centuries, they actually said no, uh, the early church father said there should be no remarriage uh, whatsoever, even if your spouse dies. Um, very strict restrictions. Now, let me just say, okay, let's say I'm already remarried. Let's say I, I got divorced. Maybe it was on biblical grounds. Maybe it wasn't. Now I'm remarried. And I'm not sure. Maybe there was sin in that. I, you know, what am I supposed to do with that? I, this is an invalid marriage. I'm supposed to see this as an invalid marriage. And I think that uh, the answer is we, we confess our wrongs to the Lord. And God, we are covered in, in the forgiveness that is in Christ's blood. And we confess and admit our wrongs to God. And then you make the best of the marriage that you're in. Stay where you are. And, and make that a godly marriage. Take, seek the ideal that God has for marriage and know that there's forgiveness. Now, there may be other people who have been affected by that divorce that, that you need to go and acknowledge that my actions in, in that marriage were wrong and I want to seek reconciliation. I want to seek wholeness. Um, but there is grace for us. And so this leads to uh, the, the fourth question that I want to answer. We've looked at how does God view marriage? How does God view divorce? How does God view remarriage? And by the way, as you, as you ask questions with these things, I'm sure this will bring up questions. Please feel free to come and talk to me, and I can try to work through them the best I can with you. But the fourth question is, how does God view us? Because uh, one of the things I mentioned last week is the Sermon on the Mount is a, uh, is a sermon that's given to a community. It's not just about how does Nate Walker live as a disciple to Jesus, but how do we as a community live as disciples to Jesus? And it shapes our community. And so I want to speak to different groups of people um, in our church uh, about um, what these things have to say about our lives. And um, the first is um, if you are a single person, um, I know that uh, being single um, 
you know, there's a lot of hopes. I mean, God, God says, the Lord says it's not good for man to be alone. And so um, I, I know that there's a lot of pain and, and it can be a lot of disappointment when uh, we want to be married. We long to have a spouse. We long to have a companion. And, um, and I, I think, uh, first of all, I want to say that I think it's okay uh, to feel that pain while at the same time holding an understanding that marriage is a good thing but it's not the ultimate thing. And that marriage at its very best is just a shadow and a picture pointing us to the true marriage with Christ. That Christ is the only thing that can satisfy us. But as we wrestle with the longing to be married, um, I think that I just want to, as we think of the severity and the seriousness of divorce, to maintain the standards that you have for the people that you're going to marry. If you're a Christian, marry a Christian. Marry someone who has the same biblical views of marriage that you do. And you may say, that limits the pool of people so much. Keep the pool limited. Because I will tell you, it is better to not be married and to wish you were than to be married and wish you weren't. It is better to not be married and wish you... uh, It is better to not be married and wish you were than to be married and wish you weren't. So maintain those, be patient, and trust God, um, and he'll be faithful to you. He will provide for you. He will, uh, he will give you strength. The second group I want to speak to are those who are married, and um, actually I actually have a few things to say. Uh, first of all, I, I want you to trust that God's commands to you to stay in a marriage are not to make you miserable. He wants good things for you. His commands are, are not burdensome. And, um, and so to trust that they're good, and uh, David uh, Schnark, who's, uh, he's not a Christian, but he's a, actually a marriage and sex therapist, he's written a book called Passionate Marriage, which actually talks about the importance of remaining in committed relationships. And one of the things that he highlights is that um, your marriage is made to mature you. And this is something I alluded to earlier. It is made to, re- even your fights, they are tailored to bring out the areas where you need to grow. And this is what he says in his book. Our self-made crises are custom-tailored, painstakingly crafted, and always fit perfectly. We construct emotional knots until eventually we are willing to go through them. We sometimes create situations that ask us to risk our marriage in order to receive its bounty. Approached in this light, committed relationships become epic dramas of heroism rather than, dark, rather than uh, soap operas. And one of the things that, that uh, Schnark says is that when you're, many people that he's counseled, when they're uh, most discouraged, they're most butting heads, and they say, this is impossible, we're never going to long. And he says, when people push through that, and they, they're humble, they're teachable, and they're growing and understanding that my identity is not in my spouse. It is not how my spouse views me. I don't need my spouse's validation, but it is the Lord's love for me is, is my prime identity. As I mature in that, and you push through, even in your darkest parts in your marriage, he says you are often on the brink of coming into the closest intimacy you've ever known in your life. And one of the things that God wants to do in our marriage is not simply give us joy, but he wants to expand our capacity for joy. He wants to not just give us intimacy, but he wants to expand our capacity for intimacy. You don't know what intimacy is right when you get married. And you're going to have to change. And you're going to have to grow. And you're going to have to walk through walls. And if you don't have the, the walls of the committed relationship, then the work that God intends to do in us won't be done. So stay in there. Lastly, I want to speak to those of you who um, have been through divorce. And, um, you know, some of the things I've said this morning may be 
uh, unsettling to you, uh, troubling. It may be hard to listen to these things. And uh, you may feel there are relationships that you need to speak to and address. Um, but the thing I want to leave you with uh, uh, this morning is that uh, one of the most um, celebrated encounters that Jesus has in any of the Gospels is uh, in John chapter 4, where Jesus uh, goes out of his way to meet a woman who's been married five times and is currently living with a man who is not her husband. And he goes and uh, he talks with her. He meets with her. This woman that no one else would talk to, he talked with her. And she immediately knew that just his presence was showing her grace. And he offered to give her living waters. And uh, this woman was so captured by this, he, uh, this that she ran home. She went to her village and she told everyone. And it's interesting what she told everyone. She didn't tell everyone, hey, there's this man who didn't care anything that happened in my life. He didn't, no. She said, come see a man who told me everything I ever done. He knew everything and he looked me in the face and he embraced me and he, and he gave me a relationship. He didn't run away from me. He didn't shun me. He didn't pile onto me. He gave me grace. He loved me. And all of this comes in the context of Jesus shows grace to broken people. And so however uh, marriage, divorce has impacted your life, in Christ there is wholeness, there is forgiveness, there is healing. And let us uh, go to him as we wrestle through these things. Let's pray together.